Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 130 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We are sitting across the table together. Yes, just like in old days. It's been a year and a half almost. Well, yeah, I think early March 2019 was the last time we recorded together in person. So this is quite lovely. I don't know if you can hear it in the sound of our voices, but we are both wearing big smiles. Yes, we are. Fully vaccinated big <laughs> smiles. Yes. We're so <laughs> grateful to be here. And mm-hmm. we want to acknowledge too that it's not over yet. There's mm-hmm. still a ways to go with the pandemic. And so we hope that you're doing what you need to do to take care of yourself and stay healthy. And we just also want to remember everyone who has passed away yeah. during this time. Mm-hmm. And most people I know have been impacted by this somehow. Yeah, so. same here. Our thoughts are with everybody. Yes, indeed. Now, it's also an exciting episode because... Because it's another 10th episode. And every 10 episodes, we do a giveaway. Right. So excited. Chris has a couple books that she's going to give to the giveaway this time. Yes. So there are two hardcover books of books I've read recently. The first is Ghosts of Harvard by Francesca Saratola. I feel like I just messed up her name. Maybe I did. I apologize if I did. And then the second book is Leaving Coy's Hill by Catherine A. Shearbrook. And this is a historical fiction about the life of Lucy Stone, who was a suffragette and equal rights advocate. Right. And the the winner of the giveaway is going to get those two books and then is going to be able to go to our bookshop.org page and pick a book that's over 400 pages. Yes, and it has to be over 400 pages because we are once again this year participating in our friend Sue's big book summer reading challenge, which is to read a book or two or three or as many as you want that are over 400 pages. We asked Sue to tell us a little bit about her reading challenge herself. Hello, fellow Book Cougars listeners. This is Sue Jackson of the Book by Book blog, here today to tell you about my annual summer reading challenge, the Big Book Summer Challenge. Ten years ago, with both of my book groups taking a summer break, I decided it was time to tackle some of the bigger books on my shelves that I never seemed to have time for. I declared it the summer of the big book, and I started by reading Pillars of the Earth, which I had wanted to read for a long time and ended up loving. The next year, in 2012, I invited other readers to join the fun, and the Big Book Summer Challenge was born. Since then, it has grown every year, with more and more readers getting in on the Big Book fun. The challenge is super easygoing, like summer. A big book is any book with 400 or more pages, and you can choose one or two or however many big books you want as your goal. You have from the end of May until the start of September to meet your big book goals. And participants have a lot of fun in between, um, chatting on Goodreads and on social media and sharing their big book reading adventures with other readers. So you can participate through Goodreads or on your own blog if you have one, um, but you don't need a blog to participate. This year, the Big Book Summer Challenge kicks off on Friday, May 28th and runs until Monday, September 6th. So start looking through your shelves and your to-be-read list now to see which big books you want to tackle this summer. The official sign-up page will go up on my blog on Friday, May 28th. But in the meantime, 
you can check out the 2020 Big Book Summer page for all the rules and how it works. None of that will change. Just visit my blog at bookbybook.blogspot.com for more information. You can also visit my Book by Book page on Facebook, follow me on Twitter at SueBookByBook, or visit my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash C slash SueJacksonDE. I'll share the details of the Big Book Summer Challenge in all those places. I hope you'll join in the Big Book Summer Fun this year. Chris and I are both going to participate and we're going to announce our big book reads on episode 131. Yes. So we would love to hear what books you're going to be reading this summer if you're participating in the Big Book Summer Reading Challenge. We do have our fancy new Google phone number where you could leave a message for us and we would love to put your voice with us on the podcast. So please leave a message. That phone number is 860-391-6674. Again, that's 860-391-6674. And we'll also put the number in the show notes and it's on our website as well. If you're shy, you can just shoot us an email if you prefer. It's at bookcougars at gmail.com. And if you are a newsletter subscriber you will be automatically entered to win this giveaway. And that's the only way you can be entered. So if you're not a newsletter subscriber, we highly suggest you become one. Yeah. And you can go to bookcougars.com to our subscribe page. And we will put that in the show notes as well. We only send one newsletter a month. We don't sell your name or do any of that hokey stuff. Yeah, we don't spam (laughs) you. So yes, become a subscriber and be entered to win automatically. And then, you know, get our juicy bits once a month. That's right. We got lots of juicy bits we put in the (laughs) newsletter. (laughs) So Chris, what are you currently reading? You know, I'm currently reading three things. So I have the audiobook version going of our current read-along, which is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. She narrates the book, and I love it. Oh, my gosh. Her voice is so friendly and mm-hmm. kind. Mm-hmm. It's like you're sitting with this wonderful peer slash mentor. I just, I'm in love with the book, and I think we talked about it at some point. She's also a poet. I think she talks about, you know, being a poet. So her writing is beautiful as just well as very informative. Yeah. And she's a botanist. I mean, she's a PhD in botany. She's very smart with the science. And she's also a Native American. And so she has that I kind of compare it to how there are doctors that have the American Medical Association training, but then they're also, you know, osteopaths and homeopaths and they mix all of the medicines. She's the same. Like she understands the science of the plant, but she also talks about it with the native mindset as well, which is really beautiful, I think. Yes, it is. One of the running things, or, or at least a couple of the essays, is that she's trying to learn her native language, which is Potawatomi, I believe. And that's fascinating. And she's also a mother. And I just got through the chapter where she drops her youngest off at college and she purchased a kayak. She said that was like her midlife crisis, empty nest purchase. And she put it on top of the car, dropped her daughter off at school with the kayak on, goes to take a paddle and is doing all this reflection, but also talking about how she wasn't 
crying or upset and I'm like tears are rolling down my face as I'm listening to this I'm like glad you weren't upset I'm upset for you but yeah I'm really enjoying it and reminder to folks you can get audiobooks from Libro.fm yes one of our affiliates and why we affiliated with them is we love that they give part of the proceeds of each sale to independent bookstores because we are big advocates for independent bookstores and we do as an affiliate get a little bit of a cut for each sale and we greatly appreciate all of the affiliate income that we get which isn't much but it definitely helps with uh, podcast costs absolutely so if you go to libro.fm and use the promo code book cougars you get two books for the price of one yes and if you're ready, subscribe someplace else. You can always become a Patreon supporter of the Book Cougars. We do have a Patreon page that we could link to in the show notes. And we appreciate support. We really do. It's yes. helpful. And, you know, we really want to keep things ad-free because one of my biggest peeves with listening to podcasts is when you have to, like, scroll through, like, two, three, four ads sometimes. Right. Over and over. Yeah. <laughs> over and over, Rover. I'm also reading Halsey Street by Naima Coster. This was her debut novel. I also read her sophomore novel, which I talked about a few episodes ago. And this is a book that's really about neighborhood. The main character's name is Penelope. She grew up in Bed-Stuy, New York, um, at a certain point in history. I want to say kind of current it was it's definitely current day, but I don't know if it's actually like late 2000s. That's not very specific. And her mother is Dominican. Her father is a black man who owned a very well thought of record shop in Bed-Stuy. And skip ahead now and the neighborhood is really changing. And she's come back to help her father who's struggling with alcohol and has taken a fall and is hurt and he needs her help. And um, she's also an artist and trying to figure out her own art. I'm about third of the way through and enjoying it. This is a book club read for me that I forgot about. <laughs> book club is this weekend. <laughs> so, But anyway, I do recommend it. It's I'm enjoying it. It's just a nicely written story. And there are some chapters and different points of view, including her mother and times when they go visit the Dominican Republic, which is interesting. Again, it's called Halsey Street by Naima Coster. Right. Well, I'm just sitting here looking goofy at Emily because I'm so happy to be sitting across the table. <laughs> um, I am reading a novel as well. So this is Last Night at the Telegraph Club, which I love the cover. And it's by Melinda Lowe. This is a story of Lily Who. It's set in 1940s, 50s, San Francisco, mainly Chinatown, which is where Lily lives. She's Chinese American. And her mom she was born in the States. Her mother was also born in California, but her dad is from China. And so it's post-war. The rise of communism is causing a lot of distress in America. People are being questioned and uh, a lot of things are going on in that angle. But what's going on with Lily is she's figuring out her sexuality. She is being drawn to certain images and she doesn't really understand why. And, you know, she finds an ad for a male impersonator who does an act. She's fascinated with it. You know, she secretly, you know, tears it out and keeps it with her and looks at it at night and doesn't really understand. And I remember, you know, as myself as a, a budding lesbian, not understanding a lot of things 
and just feeling like, gosh, I know I don't fit in. And I, I just don't have those feelings that my girlfriends are starting to talk about. And then, you know, something happened and it's like, whoosh, suddenly my life made sense. Anyway, it's a great story about Lily, who is a high schooler going through these things. And there's a girl in her class who she's known for a very long time. And they start hitting it off and hanging out a little bit and go to a lesbian bar. And it's a really cool story. I unfortunately haven't had a ton of reading time because I just finished my semester and I was busy with those last assignments. So I look forward to getting back into this one. It's again, Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe. Yay, Chris, finishing her semester. Woohoo! Yes. <laughs> Boy, I had a great time this semester. It did take a while. It took a good almost two months to get into the swing of it, but I enjoyed it so much. I'm so glad. Really did, yeah. But look out, she's taking the summer off, so she's going to be doing a ton of reading. Be ready. <laughs> yes, you should see. I have a library cart, and you know it's a small one. I don't know, it's like 18 inches wide. I don't really remember. And so it has had school stuff on it all semester. And so one of the things I'm doing this weekend is like shifting everything off and then putting my summer reading hopefuls on. Some people change out their wardrobes in their closets, you know, take their sweaters out and all that. We don't bother no, with that. No. We just are really concerned about switching out our books. Exactly. <laughs> yes, those need to be front and center. That's right. Coming up next. <laughs> oh, I'm also reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. This is my book club book for uh, this month. And everybody in the club has read it before. I've read it once before. I think some of my book club friends have read it many, many times. And I just love the atmosphere of this novel. It's been a while since I've read it. So I'm looking forward to digging in more. I've just read a couple chapters so far. Nice. But it's nice to start the summer with a classic. So what did you just read? Well, okay, so we were just talking about my school, my semester, and one of the books I read was related to one of the projects that I had. In my archives class, we had a 60-hour field assignment, and I got placed at the Coast Guard Academy Special Collections Library, which I think I've mentioned in a past episode. And my task was they had recently found a journal that a cadet had kept in 1896, when he was on his training cruise, and they didn't know who wrote it, how it got there. It was just discovered. So my mission was to read it, to figure out who wrote it, write the finding aid on it, and digitize the diary. And writing a finding aid, it's it's not exactly like a catalog in a library where you look up books, but it's a document that tells researchers what a collection is about. So that was a great experience. It led me to reading the book that I just read, which you kindly asked about. (laughs) (laughs) It was called A Cruise on the United States Practice Ship, S.P. Chase, by Surgeon General Wyman. I think his first name was Walter. This book came out in 1910, at the time when steam was replacing sailing ships, for the most part. In the late 19th century, he had served aboard a train, the Chase, Uh, for a cruise as the surgeon slash doctor. And he wanted to write a book about his memories because this time was passing. And I read it because I wanted to get more 
knowledge of what it was like aboard the training ship Chase to have more context for writing the finding aid about the diary. And wow, I mean, it's a slim volume. And the opening scene was really a shocker for me. So there's a tradition when ships pass one another that the crew gets on deck and you all wave and yell and greet each other. So as the two ships, they're on the Tennessee River, I think it was, he said, these two ships are passing and everybody's yelling and all of a sudden the yelling gets really intense. And one of the ships sees on the other ship that there is a man hanging by his neck from the ship. And so they pull him aboard and Wyman says that he was trying to shake off his mortal coil, so committing suicide. And my first thought was, upon learning that the man was black, he was referred to as a colored roustabout, and a roustabout is an unskilled laborer for the most part. And I just wondered, like, was he trying to commit suicide? Mm-hmm. And if he was, was it because conditions were so horrific on the ship, or did somebody hang him? And then what's really interesting as well is, not interesting, but it's a real example of the white supremacist attitudes that the author, Wyman, who's a doctor, he wants to go to D.C. where the man is going to be sent to the the institution for the insane because he's considered insane. He decides he's going to take him himself because he wants to visit headquarters. So here's this patient who is under this doctor's care. They take the train to D.C., and the man is put in a corner of a baggage car, and they staple straps to the ceilings and around to make a type of cage, and they put him in that. Mm. And then the doctor, Wyman, he pays the baggage handlers to take care of the guy. And he signs a paper saying that he'll be responsible for any damages. So once they get to D.C., his main concern was, oh, good, I didn't have to pay for any damages. The patient calmed down. And I just think like, wow, I mean, it's horrific to think that this was a medical doctor who is sworn to take care of people, but he's white and this man was black and the treatment that he received, it was really a stunning opening. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, it, it, for me, the interesting parts were really his experience aboard the ship he gives a description of the ship's layout and talks about the the different positions on the ship. And I enjoy that part very much. Um, but that opening will stay with me forever, I know. And I'm, Well, such an example of how people were treated not as human beings and considered not to be of the same stature and standing. And that's what we're all looking at again now, which is shocking to me that we're still there, but here we are. Yeah, and there are other examples within the book, too. And, you know, he's a man of his time and station. Mm-hmm. There's the, the racist examples. There's some sexism that happens, and the colonial gaze is happening because they are going to Spain. So it's really fascinating to me to read these historical accounts. I mean, that's why I've always loved history, I think, because it is so different and also very similar to our own time. So I I look forward to reading more about the Revenue Cutter Service, which is what the now Coast Guard was back in the 19th century. 
It's been a great experience. And I'm going to brag on Chris because she did figure out who the author was (laughs) of this journal. So that's super cool. Totally. Yes. (laughs) Well, I think it was kind of a team effort because my supervisor, Elisa, there's a point where it's really blatant because the diary writer says one of his friends got demerits for calling him by his first name instead of calling him Mr. Mel as they were supposed to call one another Mr. So-and-so. So that's the only reason we know who it was, because for the longest time I was thinking it was this other cadet because there were clues. And you know, part of being an archivist is looking for clues right. to figure things out. So I knew that he was from California because he would say like, oh, this reminded me of Santa Cruz and I wish the ship was heading home to San Francisco and things like that. So, <laughs> Dropping little hints, right? like little breadcrumb <laughs> hints right along yeah. the way. That's so super cool. I thought it was this other guy at first for the longest time. So I was researching him and, and then all of a sudden I was there and reading the diary and that happens and it was like little fireworks went off in my head. So <laughs> You heard it here first. Yes, indeed. So again, that was a, an old book, an old memoir called A Cruise on the United States Practice Ship S.P. Chase by the Surgeon General Wyman. And I read The Age of Light by Whitney Scherer. I'm not going to talk about this for too long because we have an interview at the end of this episode with Whitney that's really great. So be sure to stick around for that. But the general premise of this book, it's historical fiction, and it's about the life of Lee Miller, who was a very famous Vogue model stateside. She went to Paris and got involved with Man Ray, who is a very famous photographer, and convinced him to become his apprentice, where she started to take pictures in her own right and became a photojournalist and took photos during World War II. The book has different chapters, and the main part of the book takes place during the time when she and Man Ray were in a very steamy love affair. And then it has also very abrupt chapters that are her experience with taking pictures during the war. So it's very interesting how she wove the story together. And she did talk to us about that. So be sure to give it a listen. Yeah, such an interesting interview. She talks about figuring that out and and her writing process in general, and also how she came to the project, which is always interesting. But in this case, I thought it was especially interesting. Yeah. So again, that's called The Age of Light by Whitney Scherer. All right. Well, the other book I read was, you know, it's not necessarily a kid's book. It's called I Will Survive. It's illustrated by Caitlin Shea O'Connor. And I Will Survive. This is about the Gloria Gaynor song, for those of you who are into disco and remember that great hit, I love that song. I did too. I still do. I do yeah, I do too. <laughs> um, I definitely have disco queued up on my iPhone all the time. So the song and the lyrics were by Frederick J. Perrin and Dino Fakaris. So what Caitlin does, the illustrator, she has a series called Lyric Pop, and it's through Akashic Books. And I thank them for sending me this review copy I got their latest email, and um, they they list books that they have forthcoming. And this is part of a series. They have some other titles coming out as well. And I requested this one to because I like to see before we recommend books to get them in our hands to know that they're good quality. And this is definitely good quality. It's the size of a kid's book, and she takes the song lyrics to "I Will Survive" and she creates a visual story. And it looks very alien like. 
like yes. Jetson-y. It, yeah, it has a Jetsons vibe for sure. Because there's a line in the song that says, and so you're back from outer space. So this is an outer space alien girl who is claiming herself. You know, it's so cool because when I was a kid, I have vivid memories of sitting in front of the phonograph (laughs) and with your album and you know they would have all the lyrics written and you could listen to the song over and over and read the lyrics and I love words and music can actually be hard for me sometimes I can't always understand the lyrics and I would just sit with friends and we would listen to songs read the lyrics look at the pictures of the band, yes, you know, yeah. remember that? Oh my God. Yeah. Like when we were talking before, I told Emily that like, I even knew who some of the studio musicians were in Nashville because I read the album sleeves. A lot of times it was printed on that or that yeah. there was an insert or it was a trifold or something like that. And I love that. And so with this book and the other books in the series, I think it would be so cool to have an intergenerational jam with you know, young kids, middle-aged people, older folks, and listen to the song and read the book, yeah. and you know, try out some dance moves or whatever. I think it'd be. A I lot think of it's fun. called busting a move. Busting a move. <laughs> <laughs> and and what's cool about this series is that um, there are different illustrators. Uh, Caitlin Shea O'Connor, who did the illustrations for "I Will Survive," has done some other books as well. But they're all very different styles. So some of the other titles, like they have the Feeling Groovy song, you know, the 59th Street Bridge song, Don't Stop, Dreamweaver, Good Times Roll, Good Vibrations, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, which is such a great summer song. So do check out this series because I think it could be a lot of fun to introduce younger folks to classics and then also for us middle-aged folks to relive yeah for sure we'll put a link in the show notes to akashic's page that has all of those listed yeah and it comes out june 1st they they have a couple that were out already and then a new batch coming out june 1st so yeah check those out all right i read great circle by maggie shipstead this book was fantastic It's 600 pages, so it was with me for a long time, but I enjoyed it tremendously. It's told from two different points of view. The main character is Marion and her twin, Jamie. The story starts out where they are infants and they're in their father's arms and they're fleeing a sinking ocean liner. The father is the business partner of the people who own this company, and he is taken to task and put in prison for this failed ship. And the twins are sent off to his brother, their uncle, in Montana, where they are raised a little bit like in a freewheeling kind of childhood because the uncle is an alcoholic artist, not very interested in being a good role model for them and raising them. And Marion and Jamie also have a very good friend throughout the book whose name is Caleb, who's a Native American, part Native American. And he too kind of has a freewheeling childhood because his mother is kind of out of the picture. So Marion ends up becoming a pilot. And that was always her dream. And she becomes a pilot because she kind of makes a deal with the devil a little bit. She doesn't realize it at the time. She also eventually becomes a pilot in the war. 
So there are a lot of scenes that have to do with the war. And one of the things that really surprised me, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, Chris, but her twin, Jamie, is a combat artist, which I had never heard of. Have you heard of that? Yeah, I have, the combat artist. Um, The Pritzker Military Library Museum in Chicago had a really great exhibit of a lot of combat artist work during World War II. It's amazing stuff. Yeah, I mean, I had never heard of that. So I'm just going to read this little part. This is when Jamie, he's part of the service. He's been sent to someplace in Alaska. So in Kodiak, he was told to report to a captain. He showed his orders, explained he was the combat artist. Christ, what next, said the captain. All right, what do you need? I'm not sure, said Jamie. I'm supposed to go around painting what I see. He didn't want to explain how really the point was to interpret what he saw. The captain didn't strike him as someone who would relish being interpreted. Sounds great. They'll surrender in no time. Now you're here. Carry on. (laughs) (laughs) The dialogue in this book is fantastic. It spans from 1914 to 2014. And in 2014, the other main story arc is... Hadley Baxter, who is a young woman, like early 20s, who's become very famous because she starred in a Twilight-esque movie. And so now, you know, the paparazzi are everywhere, etc. Her career is faltering a little bit. She had a Me Too moment, casting couch kind of moment. But into her lap falls the opportunity to play Marion, you know, like a biopic or some sort of movie about Marion. That's so cool. So it's super cool. It's interesting to see how these two women's lives grow and change throughout the course of the book. I just loved it. I highly recommend it. It could be your big book summer challenge. It could be. It's 600 pages. It definitely qualifies. It does. <laughs> That's interesting. Both of your books had the connection of combat, combat photographer and combat artist oh yeah whitney's book that's right Mm -hmm. i wonder if they well one's not real but (laughs) it sure seemed real after reading it for you know a couple weeks that's what's interesting when you stick with a book for a long time you really feel like the characters are part of your life Mm -hmm. you know yeah yeah well and women went through so much to be able to become war correspondence. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a real struggle to get Well, in, in this book, Marion goes through so much to become a pilot. And the parts about what kind of flights that women were allowed to do in the service is so interesting. I mean, for the most part, they kind of transported things and they weren't fighter pilots. You know, they were moving planes from point A to point B and in their skirts, you know, and things like that. But um, she also, towards the end of her life, what the book really is about, and this is not a spoiler because the very beginning of the book refers to this, is she wanted to circumnavigate the globe from the North Pole to the South Pole, which is very much like no one thought she'd survive. It's a dangerous thing to try to do back then, (laughs) especially. So, Oh, for sure. I mean, planes were so primitive back then. But then again, there were fewer things to break, I guess. Yeah, it was more about like so many of the places, they weren't habitable. So there weren't things there yet. Like you couldn't stop and get gas. Right. You know, and it was cold. (laughs) So it's still cold, I think. Yeah. So anyway, she said everyone's calling your book The Great Circle, but it's (laughs) called Great Circle. I even wrote it in my journal as The. I have to scratch (laughs) that up. (laughs) 
right. So what about Biblio Adventures? Well, I had a great Biblio Adventure with Chris Bojalian and Alice Hoffman through Book Bar Denver and the Arapahoe Public Library. It was an interesting conversation because both of them have written about witches and have written about Salem and that time in history. Chris Bojalian's new book is called The Hour of the Witch. And he was doing some, talk about research, Chris. He was researching Puritan theology somewhere along the time of 1672. What all of us like to do, right? (laughs) A little light reading, sure. (laughs) And he came across this woman, Elizabeth Nanny Naylor, who successfully sued her husband for divorce for cruelty. And this is during the time of the Puritans, like, That just didn't happen. Yeah, I didn't even know divorce was possible back then. I wrote this down. In the 17th century, there were 31 Puritan divorces. Wow. And how bad did you have to be back then? I mean, you imagine if she was successful, it must have been pretty darn bad, you know? So it was really interesting to see these two kind of fan over each other also. They had obviously read each other's novels and talked a lot about that, which I thought was really lovely. One of the things that made my ears perk up, Chris, is (laughs) Alice Hoffman was talking about in her early 20s and being in college and studying English and that she didn't really know that there were women writers until... She read Willa Cather. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. So I thought, oh, I know someone who will like that little tidbit. (laughs) (laughs) And then the other thing they both bonded over that I thought was hilarious is that they've both written so many books that they sometimes have trouble coming up with names for their characters now, (laughs) which I thought was hilarious. And that sometimes they'll even like put a, a placeholder name in just because they can't think of a name. And then by the end, they're kind of interest, you know, want to use that name. And sometimes their editor will be like, no, you can't use that name. And then it becomes this whole thing of how to figure it out, you know, Yeah. which I thought was really funny, which to me, like I do pay attention to names and think, I wonder where that came from. Like, where'd they pull that out of? Right. You know? yes. <laughs> so, but in the good news department, Alice Hoffman did say that she's finishing the fourth book in the Owens sister what what do you I don't even know it was a trilogy. What do you call it? A quadrilly? Qu- a quadrilly. Qu- um <laughs> Is that a thing? Oh, no, there has to be a word that yeah. we yeah. I don't wow, know. Wow, four. That's exciting. Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait. And then Chris, even though this book just came out, The Hour of the Witch, his next book will be coming out in October of twenty twenty two, The Lions of Hollywood, which sounds intriguing. What a great pairing of authors. How perfect. So much. I definitely want to watch the rerun on that. Yeah, there is a video. I will put a link in the show notes. I just showed my age. The (laughs) rerun. The (laughs) rerun. We didn't even say the DVR. Like, I think that was the next thing, right? (laughs) Oh, how cool. What about you? Well, yeah, I went to the Beinecke Library at Yale via Zoom for a talk that they uh, they invited Bill Goldstein to come give a talk. And longtime listeners will remember we had Bill as a guest on episode 119 when he was talking about his book, When the World Broke in Two, which was about 1922. And his talk this last week was Larry Kramer, 1981, and the start of AIDS activism. The moderator said, like, oh, how interesting. You have the book about 1922 and... 
1981. And Bill's like, well, maybe that's my thing. I'm going to write books <laughs> about years. Um, <laughs> but it was the 40th anniversary of the first notice in the New York native um, was in 1981. And that was the first known article about AIDS, or what became AIDS. No one knew what this disease was. It was a cancer. It was pneumonia. It was a lot of different things before it was identified for what it was. And it was a really scary time because it was affecting mainly gay men. And a lot of them died. So many. I mean, it decimated a generation. Bill is working on a biography of Larry Kramer, who was an instrumental AIDS activist who started ACT UP and just did so much. And what was interesting about the talk was that Larry Kramer, I think he was in his early 40s at the time, and he was living in London and writing in his journal just about like, I, I don't really know what my next move is going to be, but I, you know, I feel like something is coming. And, and then look at that. I mean, within a year, he was full-blown activist trying to find out what the hell was going on and getting support for these men. And as we all know, AIDS was not just something that affected gay men. Right. Um, it just hit that population the hardest right. initially. I'm not sure when Bill's book is coming out. I know when he was on with us, we talked about his research being delayed because of the pandemic and not being able to get into the Beinecke or like the New York Public Library, where they also have some of his archives because, as we know, archives don't leave the building. Right. And <laughs> a, a lot of these are not necessarily digitized. He did talk about, though, that fortunately he felt like he'd had enough opportunity to talk with Larry Kramer before he passed away. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I imagine that he'll do some more research where he might say, oh, it'd be great to be able to ask Larry about this. Right. You know, exactly. Sadly, he won't be able to. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the questions that the moderator asked was, you know, did Larry give you any parameters? Or, oh, that's you know, a good question. And Bill said, no, not at all. He didn't say, don't write about this or, well, look at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was just really that's open. That's a great question. Yeah, yeah, yeah it really was. So um, I just thought I'd mention, too, there's a, a new book, and I meant to see if it was out already or coming out. I apologize. I don't know for sure. But this is a book by Sarah Schulman that's um, called Let the Record Show, A Political History of Act Up New York, 1987 to 1993. And Alexander Chi gave this a really glowing review. In part, he said, a masterpiece of historical research and intellectual analysis, story of a moment that changed the world at least once, now a part of the work to change that world again. Any reader will be changed dot, 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 by the stories here, radicalized and renewed, which to me is something better than just hope. I love that line. Keep your eyes out for Bill Goldstein's book on Larry Kramer. We will let you know as soon as we know when it might be on bookshelves. You can be sure we will. I also attended an event via Greenlight Bookstore with Brandon Taylor and Maggie Shipstead. Brandon Taylor wrote the book Real Life, which our buddy Russell, who was on our episode talking about our favorite reads of 2020, put in his top 10. It was close to a top 10 for me, but didn't quite make it. Really great book. And then Maggie Shipstead is the author of Great Circle. And it was a great conversation. I'm somewhat obsessed with Maggie Shipstead right now. (laughs) I did ask one question, which was, the book has a fantastic ending, which of course I'm not going to spoil. 
I wanted to know, did she start with the ending? Like, did she know how this masterpiece was going to end? And she said she did not know the ending. And as a matter of fact, she wrote this book. I think I misspoke on the last episode and said that she had written 900,000 words. She'd actually written 300,000 words, <laughs> 900 pages. Well, 300,000 is, you know, that's, that's a chunk of change. Yeah. <laughs> 300, 950 words to me seems like a lot. Anyway, she said she'd been writing for two years and she was like starting to get upset. Like her friends were publishing books again. She hadn't published a book now for a while. She's like, people are going to forget about me. And then she said, what am I talking about? I'm a novelist. Everyone forgets about you. You know, like (laughs) stop worrying about that and just keep writing. And she said, eventually the ending did kind of reveal itself. And she felt really good about that. I'm glad it had a good ending when you devote this much time to a book if the ending's bad, it's extra disappointing. Yes, it is. Yes. (laughs) So the other thing that she talked about was that that I didn't mention that Marion, she plays with her gender a lot in this book and her sexuality. And there were a couple times in Marion's life where she actually dresses as a man to pass and be able to fly and do things like that. And she said she, she felt like a lot of her research showed that actually there were a lot of transvestites and cross-dressers and things back in the day and that people really didn't care, that it was just kind of accepted as a normal thing, which I thought was really interesting. Hmm. And um, the other thing she talked about was that the story really is about two women who are trying to become themselves in spite of the patriarchy that they're faced with, both in the early 1900s and the mid 2000, 2000, what do we call it? In 2014. Okay. So anyway, and the other thing that Maggie divulged that made me very excited is that she has a short story collection coming out. Yay. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And Brandon Taylor has a story collection coming out, I believe in June. You see their June or July called Filthy Animals. So stay tuned for that. So it was a great event. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, I also went a little book shopping. I had to run an errand to a particular pet store, and there just happens to be a Barnes and Noble, just kind of, <laughs> you know, down the street. Um, so I went to the Barnes and Noble in North Haven, Connecticut, and did a nice browse. They have a new president who is changing things. Um, one of the big things, at least from a customer's perspective, is they're relaying their floors. So, you know, in retail, a relay is changing the floor plan. You know, retailers do this occasionally because your categories shift in size and everything. New categories come in and whatnot. I love what they're doing with the stores. They're making these little nooks. So instead of having just row after row of shelving, they have little nooks now. Where um, So like in the literature section, it's kind of an L. And then within the L, there was like two bays of books and one, it was called Black Voices, as I believe is what it was called. This is a new, newish section, anyway, of fiction by African-American writers. And I just love the idea of these little nooks because it does give you a little bit sense of privacy. Yeah. And like you're in a smaller store mm-hmm. almost, which yeah. I really like. It um, seems like that's what they're trying to kind of make it be more like an independent, you know, and have those little nooks and crannies that you think of in those stores. Yeah, exactly. That's cool. Yeah. So, nice. Yeah. Good. I enjoyed that very much. It was nice to get out into a big store. 
I, I have to laugh though. Chris is like, you know, it's nearby the pet store. Chris and I have been known to, let's see, when we went up to Northshire in Manchester, we just decided we'd drive home via Northshire in Saratoga Springs because <laughs> it's just right around the corner. It was. It was, it's only like maybe an extra hour or something, you know. I'm thinking like, oh, let's see, the pet store and the bookstore were probably an hour apart. But, you know, it was worth it. (laughs) So what about upcoming jaunts? Do you have anything on your calendar? Yes, we have two joint jaunts actually to report. One is that we recorded with Jenny from Reading Envy last week. Episode 221 of hers will air or drop on June 1st. And we talked about our joint read-along of the poetry book edited by Joy Harjo. Yes. Yes. When the light of the world was subdued, our voices came came through. through. Yes. Beautiful. It was a really great conversation. And we will, of course, once it's live on June 1st, send out all sorts of social media, et cetera, on it so folks can find it. Yeah, that was a really fun conversation. And I was a little apprehensive about, you know, talking about poetry because I... Don't know why, but I still get a little nervous about poetry. Well, I think it's also our my book club talks about this. Like when you read a short story collection, sometimes it's hard to figure out how to talk about something that doesn't have like a very specific story arc. So it was hard to know where to dig in, but we had no problem. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a shock. Well, yeah, the three a, of us, <laughs> right? And in a book that that that's that big, mm-hmm. and you feel like you want to do so much justice to it, yeah, you know, and you just can't. Yeah. So I think we focused on some good poems, but yeah, definitely check out that episode over yeah. at Reading Envy. And then we're hosting a Zoom event with all seven of the Jungle Red writers on June 10th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. So excited about that. Yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to prattle off their names. These will also be in the show notes. Julia Spencer Fleming, Lucy Burdett, Hallie Efron, Reese Bowen, Hank Philippi Ryan, Deborah Crombie, and Jen McKinley. That's going to be a big party. It is. (laughs) We hope you join us. Between all of them, they've published a lot of books. I am committed. I'm looking at Chris like, I hope I really am committed to put um, all of their books on our bookshop.org page. So you can go there, see what their books are. Many, Many of them have series as well. So I'll hope to try to figure that out. Yeah. It could be a challenge. Well, I salute you, Emily Fine. <laughs> <laughs> you are a brave woman to take that on. Yes, we'll see how that goes. Maybe next podcast I'll have like my tail between my legs and say, uh, email me if you want the list. No, just kidding. <laughs> oh, that's great. What about you? Do you have any upcoming jaunts? You know, I do. It's that time of the year again. It's the Willa Cather Spring Conference is coming up. And it's June 3rd to the 5th. It's online. They are having some features in person. If you should want to go to Red Cloud, Nebraska, I know that's kind of cutting it close by the time this goes live. Um, But it's going to be on an app called Whova, which is what they used last year, which I thought was a lot of fun. I it was the first conference that I did that was on an app like that. So I didn't really know what to expect. But you got to see all the events and participate in some of the Q&A's. You could also connect with people, which was really fun. And I connected with a group of women where we formed a writing group. 
And we've been going strong for a whole year now, which is, I was just like, it's been a year already? That's amazing. So, I feel like you just talked about this conference. It's I know. amazing to me. Yeah, time this. Yeah, time is whacked, but um, <laughs> it's a really cool conference. So if you have the slightest interest in Willa Cather, or if you're a fanatic kind of like I am, <laughs> check it out. Um, if you're a first-time conference goer, there's a code that you could use called, it's just welcome Twenty One to um, get half off the admission price, which is generally $100. That's so cool. I love it that. It is cool, that. isn't that? And the, so each of these conferences has a theme, and this year's theme is the intersections of Cather's life and writings with newspapers and magazines. That's going to be the focus. And so as a result, they have some really great speakers and authors who are going to be there. The keynote speaker is Radhika Jones, who's the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair, she was previously an editorial director of the books department at the New York Times, and she was managing editor at the Paris Review, among other things. Whew, so heavy um, hitter. Yeah, totally. And then another invited speaker is Dr. Jean Lee Cole, who is editor of the journal American Periodicals, and her research focuses on American lit in relation to race, gender, and landscapes. And I know a lot of our listeners are into those subjects, so... If you're interested, just go to willacather.org and you'll find info there. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. So the other event, unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be able to attend any of these sessions that they're having, but it's CrimeCon, which we've talked about in the past. It's an annual event sponsored by the Friends of the Ferguson Library and the Mystery Writers of America New York chapter. They usually meet in person, and it was a one-day event, which I really loved because it was one day in one room, so you got to see all the panels. You didn't have to pick and choose. Now on Zoom, you also don't have to pick and choose because you're there, and they're spreading it over three nights, which is cool. Three weeks, I should say. It's June 3rd, 10th, and 17th, and that's kind of nice because then you're not you know, blocking off three whole nights in a row. Yeah. One of the panels I wanted to point out, because there's a past guest of ours and a future guest of ours on this panel, it is called Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood, Breaking Out of Genre Tropes. Sounds like a great topic to me. Luann Rice is going to be a panelist on there, and she was recently our guest on episode 126. And then also Juliet Grames, who Emily read her book, the Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. Yeah, which I'll be reading this summer. I got a copy recently. And, and Juliet will be our guest coming up in a future episode. The moderator of that panel, I should also say, is Sari Rosenblatt. And there's another panelist named Charles Coe who's going to be talking with them. So we'll put the link in the show note to CrimeCon. It's a free event. So I hope you take advantage of it if you're a mystery thriller lover. I attended the Zoom event last year and, and really enjoyed it. And hopefully they're recording them because neither of us can make the event with Luann. Sadly, it's right. the same night as our event. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and Luann's book is The Shadow Box, just to remind people, which we both really loved. What are your upcoming reads? So June is Gay Pride Month or LGBTQ Month. And I have some LGBT books I want to read. Uh, these are three books that I picked up when I was at Barnes & Noble the other day running that errand. <laughs> <laughs> 
I picked up The Essential Dykes to Watch Out For by Alison Bechdel. I love Dykes to Watch Out For. That was a comic series that I loved. I read it a ton in the late 80s, early 90s. It was in all the local gay uh, newspapers, I should say, syndicated. And I looked it up before we started recording, and that comic strip started in 1983. Wow. Yeah. And it went to 2008. So for old lesbians, you know, it was kind of like, oh, great, she has this memoir coming out called Fun Home. And I think that Fun Home was when a lot of people got introduced to her work. Yeah. Um, but Dykes to watch out for, it was kind of like a lifeline for young, you know, gay and lesbian people to have a comic that talked about daily life between friends. Yeah. Uh, it was really instrumental. Well, I was going to say she's probably somewhat responsible for, I hope this isn't an offensive term, but normalizing it, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's wonderful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The thing is, too, you know, talking about like normalizing, you know, and also just educating people, too, that, you know, I think one of the problems people had with, quote, homosexuals was that they were over-sexualized. And people still tend to look at gays and lesbians as sexual. And I had some issues with people in my life about that surrounding children when it's like, no, you don't tell the children that, these two women are having sex, you say they love each other. They're in a relationship like mommy and daddy or like, you know, uncle Joe and aunt Beth, you don't say, you you know, like you don't do that. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, that was the tradition that we were othered as being these sexual perverts who couldn't control ourselves. Mm -hmm. And people like Alison Bechdel definitely brought to light we're just like everybody else we have different problems we have the same problems but we're just human beings trying to make it through and loving people right right and have the same relationship problems Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah exactly and the same thing like some people some lgbt folks are very 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 much into just one person like they find their one person and that's it and other people date around a lot. It's right. people As people. do heterosexuals. Right, exactly. It's yeah. the same thing. I just listened to Alison Bechdel on uh, Terry Gross's Fresh Air. She has a new book out called The Secret to Superhuman Strength, which has a hilarious cover. <laughs> and it's about her like endless pursuit of exercise in real life. She asked her questions about her body, which was appropriate for this conversation because it was about exercise, you know. And she said to has has it been hard to figure out how to sketch yourself, draw yourself and represent yourself in a cartoon from when you were younger to when you're now a middle-aged woman. Mm -hmm. And she's, you know, she kind of paused, like to me, it was such a fantastic question. And she said, yeah, I guess I have, you know, but how you figure that out is I still dress the same and, you know, all of that. So I thought it was really interesting. It's a great (laughs) interview. I really recommend it. Oh, that's so cool. Definitely check that out. Yeah. Yeah. How fun. Um, the other book I picked up was To Be Young, Gifted, and Black by Lorraine Hansberry. I'm really looking forward to that. It's considered autobiographical, kind of like an experimental, oh, informal autobiography is what this is calling it. I read the a biography of her. Was that last summer? Two summers ago? I don't remember now. I don't remember. I was yeah. trying to think if it was on your top 10. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Yeah, that's <laughs> terrible. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I really am looking forward to reading more by Lorraine Hansberry because I was 
really intrigued by that biography. And the introduction to this book that I have in my hand is by James Baldwin. And she and Baldwin were really good buddies. That's so, cool. so looking forward to reading that this summer. And now the third book I picked up at Barnes & Noble is not gay or lesbian related or queer. As far as I know, it could be because I've never read it. It's a classic, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. And I believe this one is going to be a big book. Yeah, it qualifies. So we'll see if I get to it this summer. How about you? Two books. I have Early Morning Riser by Katherine Haney. I don't know anything about this book. I put it on request. I think it's because I read about it maybe in the Times. And then several of our mutual friends have been um, noting that they've been reading it on Goodreads. And so I thought, oh, I'll give it a try. I just got it from the library, so my clock is ticking on that one. And then the other one is Prepare Her by Genevieve Plunkett. This book comes out on July 13th, and it's a short story collection set in Vermont. So I'm really looking forward to that. I haven't read short stories much lately, so I'm kind of hankering. Coming up next is our interview with Whitney Scherer. We do want to just let people know that one of the things that Whitney writes about in The Age of Light, but also did some research on, was that Lee Miller did have a very tough childhood. She was sexually abused by her father. And we talk about that and the fact that she was raped. And then we also do talk about concentration camps. And I read a little bit of her book that takes place um, at a concentration camp. So we just want to give people some warning about that part of the conversation. But the rest of the conversation is lovely. Whitney is a delight. And I think you'll really enjoy it. We're so excited to be talking today with Whitney Scherer, author of The Age of Light, a novel about Lee Miller, who was an actual Vogue model turned photographer. The Age of Light was a Boston Globe and Indie Next bestseller. It was named one of the best books of 2019 by Parade, Glamour Magazine, Real Simple, Refinery29, Booklist, and Yahoo. It was the winner of some awards in Paris that I can't pronounce. But Whitney's short fiction, essays, and interviews have appeared in numerous publications, including Vogue, The Telegraph, The Tatler, The Bellevue Literary Review. When she's not writing, Whitney teaches fiction in the Boston area and is a co-founder of the Arlington Author Salon, which is a weekly, a quarterly, I'm sorry, reading series, which we really hope to talk with you about uh, during this interview. It sounds like a really great program. And Whitney's also a fantastic graphic designer. For those of you who are fans of A Mighty Blaze, Whitney created their logo and she does all of their graphic designs. So welcome, Whitney. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And I can't pronounce the French prizes either, so <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> so Whitney, I loved The Age of Light. I thought it was such a beautifully written book. Can you give the listeners just a brief synopsis of what the book's about? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. I'm really glad you liked it. It is based on the life of Lee Miller. um, And uh, she was a 
fascinating woman who reinvented herself a number of times over the course of her life. And um, the book centers on primarily on her early life when she abandoned a very successful Vogue modeling career and moved to Paris all by herself in order to pursue her dream of being an artist. And when she got to Paris, she fell in pretty quickly with the surrealists who were working and making art there and became a, a lover and muse and assistant and sort of you know, of all these different roles with Man Ray, the famous surrealist artist. And she worked with him for a number of years. They had this crazy love affair. Uh, so the book, the book is about their love affair. And then I also dip into the, the later history of her life when she went on to become one of the first female war course correspondents during World War II. And that part of her life is, is, is just, just as fascinating as everything else. It was really when she made her best art. Uh, she was there at the opening of um, the concentration camps, Dachau and Buchenwald. Um, she went most famously perhaps she uh, went to Hitler's apartment in Munich after he um, had abandoned the city and uh, staged a photo of herself taking a bath in Hitler's bathtub. So if people don't know who Lee Miller is, oftentimes they will maybe know that photo and go, oh, that's Lee Miller. But so, and that, that photo is amazing. So if you haven't seen it, you should look it up. But she was just this really bold, confident, just amazing, talented woman. And um, I tried to capture that in my novel. Yeah, you did a great job. So, so why Lee Miller, though? That was my burning question. How did you come to be fascinated with her and want to write an entire novel about her? Yeah, yeah. Well, so it it happened because I have studied photography for pretty much my whole life. Um, I did a lot of darkroom photography in high school and college, and I took, you know, art history classes and, and that kind of thing. And I knew all about Man Ray, and I had never heard of Lee Miller. And there was an exhibit in 2011 at a museum north of where I live. And it was it was called Man Ray and Lee Miller, Partners in Surrealism. And I went there with my two-year-old daughter and I went to go see Man Ray because I loved his work. And I, I will never forget it. I walked into the exhibit and I just immediately was like, who is this woman? She's so incredible. Like, she's so beautiful. You know, they had his photos of her. They had all of her incredible work. And I just kind of walked around this exhibit with my jaw down to the floor, just being absolutely captivated by her. And I I left thinking, you know, somebody should write a novel about this woman. Like, she is amazing. And I bought a biography about her and I started reading. And it took me about two years of reading and kind of psyching myself up before I thought, well, maybe that person could be me. <laughs> um, but she's still, she's just fascinating to me. You know, I mean, I just, I just find her just... Um, endlessly, endlessly interesting. Wow, that's awesome. What a great story. I mean, you're a graphic designer, photographer yourself. So to be captured by all the visuals that you saw, as opposed to coming to her through maybe a biography that wouldn't have had that same impact. Yeah, no, that's totally Mm -hmm. true. And I think I think that I'm a really visual writer too, which I guess makes sense also being a designer. Although people ask, people always ask like, oh, are you like a visual writer? And I, I don't really know what that means. <laughs> like, I'm always like, I don't know. I don't know how else I would write, but I think I, I think that is what I do. I think that's my process. I kind of see stuff and then, and sort of imagine the world and then, and then write it down. And so I used all of, all of their photos and, um, you know, I had like big design boards with, you know, all of her images. And I kind of kept going back to them again and again, as I was writing the book. Oh, that's really cool. Did you keep an archive of all of those? I have, yeah, I mean, sort of, I had like a bulletin board with some of it on there and I have like a photo of the the bulletin board, but I also have um, 
I actually used a Pinterest page for, for a lot of it because then I could take it with me. You know, it was just kind of like on my phone all the time. And I still, that's still up and you, you can check it out. And it kind of has a history of, of all of the photos that I was inspired by as I was writing the book. Well, that is so cool. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes, and I can't wait to, to check that out. Yeah, totally. I'll yeah. send you the link. Afterwards. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks. that's totally cool. cool. I really wanted to somehow be able to impart to folks how you weave the story in and out of time, you know, because as you said, you're going from her time in Paris with Man Ray during this incredibly very hot love affair they're having, hot and cold, I should say. And then, you know, you skip ahead to when she is also a war correspondent and taking photos. So if it's okay with you, I was just going to read a little section that I, I think shows how you did this so well. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So to set up the moment, Lee and Man Ray have had an argument. They have several <laughs> in the story. And they're they're coming back together after this this tough moment they've had. Um, so this is, this is where we're at. Later, they go home together. Man seems satisfied by their conversation. He holds her hand while they walk to the apartment, gently moves her out of the way of a pothole in the road. When they get inside, he runs a bath for her. And when she has dried off and gotten into her dressing gown, she finds him in their small kitchen where he has scrambled her an egg. It sits steaming on a plate on the counter, and man spreads butter on a slice of toast and adds it to the plate. Lee is famished, eats the egg, and then another. She feels warm from the food in her stomach and warm from the bath and from the robe she has knotted at her waist. She and man barely speak, but there is comfort in their silence. If this is not love, then what is? And then you turn the page, and you're in Dachau. Mm-hmm. which is a concentration camp, April 30th, 1945. If Lee uses a wide angle and takes in the landscape, getting the tidy lawns of the nearby village in the shot, she can show how close the trains were to civilians, how they knew, how they must have known. If she frames the shot through the open train car door, foregrounds the dead man's skull, his cheekbones almost slicing through what's left of his skin, If she takes a photo of one of the rabbits they raised in the camp, its clean white fur, its plump rolls of well-fed fat, bred to be a muff for an overfed frow to push her fists into, a prisoner feeding the rabbit grain out of his dirt-blackened hand. And you go on and on. I could keep reading, but I'm I'm not going to. But um, it's so abrupt and, and so shocking and so vividly written. How did you decide, you know, how to weave the story in that way? I, well, first off, you probably have to do a trigger warning for the, for that scene, you know, for this podcast. Um, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty intense. It might be one of the most intense moments in the book, I think. But um, I, I took, it took me a long time to write this book. It took me um, almost seven years, actually, with all the researching and, you know, waffling around that I did and everything. Um, and a piece of that was definitely trying to figure out the structure of the story. And so... I hope this answer isn't going to be too long. I feel like I have to sort of frame all of it a little. I don't know if you want to, but Lee Miller was a woman who was extremely beautiful and talented and kind of got a lot of things that she wanted, but she was also somebody who had suffered huge, huge traumas in her life. Um, Even before she got to the war and um, the PTSD that, that that came from, you know, all the things she photographed, she um, was raped when she was a child and she had a very, strange, emotionally 
sort of abusive relationship with her father. And I think that those traumas informed all of the actions uh, that she did in the rest of her life as, as they would, um, of course, you know. And so when I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot about trauma um, as I was writing it. And I was just trying to figure out her character and who she was and why she was making the choices that she was making. And initially when I was working on it, I sort of thought like, okay, I'll have part one and that'll be Paris. And then I'll have part two and that'll be world war two. It'll just be kind of this, you know, just normal structure, I guess. But then as I was writing all the scenes from world war two, I kept writing these really short, strange little scenes, one to three pages each. And I thought like, ah, I'm going to have to, make these longer, <laughs> make them fit into some different structure. I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just kept writing them. And then I found uh, this book called um, The Body Keeps the Score. It's a very famous book on trauma. I think it's still on the New York Times bestseller list. It's been there forever. Fabulous novel. And I was thinking, reading that and thinking about how um, traumatic memories kind of surface for people unbidden and unwanted when, you know, out of the blue or triggered by something that they smell or see. And so I started thinking about these World War II scenes almost like like that, like these, these unbidden memories that were kind of coming to the surface of the larger story that Lee was in effect telling throughout the novel. And when I thought of that, I thought, oh, they're like little pieces of shrapnel. They're like stuck mm. in her memory. And that to me was just the perfect way for me to tell that part of her life because I felt like the, those World War II memories would come back to her that way. They would come back in these these very visual, very um, you know sharp moments, and they would surface at these these odd times. I did try in revising the book to kind of to either do the piece that like like you just read, where it's like a very shocking switch from something soft to something very violent. Or I tried to kind of tie the pieces together by like, you know, there's something metal in the chapter beforehand and then the next one begins with the smell of metal or something like that. So there is like some tiny little key that kind of like unlocks the next scene from, from chapter to chapter. Uh, but yeah, so that was, that was what I landed on. And, and then when I did, I felt like, oh, this is, this is it. This is how I want to tell this story. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you for explaining that process. Cause it is, it's fascinating to hear how a writer puts things together. Yeah, very, very confusedly at first, and then with decision at the end. (laughs) Well, and then also being informed by that other book you read, you know, like, and having kind of that aha moment. That's really Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so great to read. You just never know what the thing is going to be that that unlocks something for you. So I I, I love just reading all sorts of weird research books as I go along and and hoping that, you know, that'll be the thing that'll, that'll move me along in the process. What kind of reader are you when, uh, so I know you have your research reading, but um, as a reader of uh, pleasure or reader reading books for pleasure, that's how you say that. <laughs> what, <laughs> what kind of books do you enjoy reading? I mean, I, I love lots of different things, but I mean, I think, I think I primarily read like literary fiction, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I think, I think that's kind of my jam. I like reading things for the beauty of the language. And, you know, I, I go to that before I go to story, probably for the mm-hmm. most part. Um, that might not be as true as it was when I was, when I was younger, I used to love things that were like lyrical and like had no plot. And now I'm kind of like, 
okay, tell me a story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I, I have a little less patience for the, for the like lyrical language that doesn't go anywhere than, than I used to. But um, I just finished reading a uh, great circle by Maggie Shipstead, which just came out like, like a couple weeks ago. And that to me is like, that's like my type of book, like historical fiction, but super well-written, really ambitious, beautiful sentences you want to underline. Like that's, that's what I love. I just finished that too. I loved it. Yeah. And now I'm obsessed with watching her, you know, because she's on her book tour. So I I just keep listening to her because she's an amazing writer. She, I've read everything she's written now. And um, yeah, she's really, she's really incredible. I have like a writer crush on her and I'm thinking of like emailing her and being like, hi. (laughs) (laughs) I think you should do it. (laughs) And then tell her you have two friends you want to invite. I'll be like, I have a podcast you need to go on. Yes, please. Well, one of the things that I thought was so interesting, and I don't want to give away the ending, but you you get into this a little bit in the ending, but is this process of solarization Mm -hmm. that photographers use? Can you maybe describe it? And then did Lee Miller invent it and Man Ray adopted the use of it? Yeah. So, okay. So first off, yeah. So the process of it is when people used to, you know, use film cameras, uh, they would, you know, you transfer your, your negatives from your camera into a developing tank. And you had to do all of that in the dark, in the dark room, like pitch black. And if any light got onto the negatives before they had been developed, then they would get ruined. So the process of solarization is actually a putting the negatives into the like turning on the light or something like that in the dark room while you're while you're developing them and exposing them to the light prematurely and if you do that for just a very short period of time the negatives um the chemicals on the negatives kind of I, i don't quite know the science of it to be honest but they sort of switch places and so the black parts of the negative and the white parts of the negative almost switch and it can create these really like interesting kind of ghostly images and oftentimes the where the image is um, right at the edge between black and white in the image it'll there'll be this line like a pencil line almost between them so it gives it gives things this very magical quality and uh, Man Ray is credited as discovering it it was actually also done in the 1850s under a different name but he really was the one who who took that process and turned it into like into art um and the surrealists loved it because photography was all you know all about like capturing real life like fact kind of and when you solarized an image it made it very dreamy it kind of blurred the line between reality and and fantasy and that was um, a huge piece of what the surrealists were always thinking about and doing. So um, he he definitely popularized that. So in his autobiography and in like a bunch of different interviews and stuff, he always took full credit for um, for having discovered this process. But Lee Miller in interviews that she did said that she was part of this process with him. And so that the novel has that, what she does in the, um, that she describes in her interviews happens in the novel. And I think that 
you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's true, but I do think that she certainly, even if the way that she described how she was integral in the discovery, even if that was sort of fictionalized by her, she was there. She was doing this process with him. Lots of his early images that he solarized were images of her. She herself has photographs that she solarized when she was working in his studio. So she was she was a part of that discovery. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. And so, you know, I just... I like, um, I liked putting it into the book the way that she told it and, and kind of giving her ownership over that aspect of that. Cause I, th- I, I'm sure she was, I'm sure there's some truth to it, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. You can't separate the partnership from the work. I mean, in so many, I know in literature, they're doing so much research on how partnerships do impact creation and that there's this myth of the solo artist, which is, kind of a myth in a lot of cases. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and I think like in the 1930s, you know, there Lee Miller was, she was Man Ray's assistant. I mean, that was her, her title at his studio. And yet what that meant was that she was developing his photographs for him. Uh, she was working on her own work side by side with him in the dark room. And so I think there was just a lot, I mean, not to mention the fact that they were like romantically involved. So there was just a lot of like overlap between what they were doing. Um, no question. But it also makes sense that Man Ray would take credit because it was the 1930s. He was the sort of, you know, the famous male artist and, and she, she was new to photography. So um, it's, it's to be expected, I think. So I, I have a burning question. You just talked about them having a love affair. Is it hard to write love scenes? <laughs> um, well, yes. I mean, okay. So I have two answers to that question. The first answer is that writing a love scene is the same as writing any hugely dramatic moment in a novel, right? So it would be just as hard, I think, to write a scene where somebody gets shot because you have to like build up to that dramatic moment. So you kind of put all these pieces in place and you're telling this whole story and then you get there and it's the dramatic thing and you want to describe it well. So it functions in the same way that that anything else does in literature. So in that sense, like all of writing is hard. <laughs> and so, yes, it's hard. Um, it's also kind of fun, you know? I mean, I don't know. I find it kind of fun. And what I did was I... Um, I went to a writing residency uh, down in Virginia and I had like two weeks just to work on my book. And I was like, I'm going to write all of these sex scenes now. <laughs> and I basically <laughs> just like wrote like every, there's like a lot of sex. There's a lot. There's yeah. a lot of sex. <laughs> and I just, I really, I like wrote all of that. I wrote their whole love affair, like while I was in this, at this residency. And I think it was because I was just, that's all I was doing and thinking about. Like I, I, um, I was just very focused. And so I, I never kind of left the dream for those, for those weeks. And that made it easier. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I know. I would like yeah. emerge from this room. Like, nobody could eat the residency. I'd be like, <laughs> you're like, uh, Whitney, you look a little flushed. <laughs> 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 oh, awesome. How's it going? Oh, good. It's, it's going really, really well. <laughs> Speaking of residencies, tell us about your... Um, the Arlington Authors one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, it's, 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 sort of, it's sort of exactly what it sounds like. It's a, it's a, qu- a quarterly reading series. Um, I, I live in Arlington, which is like a small town north of Boston. And uh, there's this wonderful coffee house where, where we hold the reading series. But the thing that we do that's cool is uh, 
every event we feature three authors and we have them read on a theme. So they, their work has to be related in some way. And they're, they have to bring in another sensory element to their presentation. So they could bring in, like somebody brought in um, all of these like plants and flowers from New, New Jersey where their book was set and passed them around and everybody smelled them. Um, oh. Margot Livesey came one time and she, she read this very strange story and she had a paper mache horse head that she wore <laughs> for part of her reading. Like obviously fit the story, but like, it was crazy and super cool. We've had musicians, you know, we've had all these different things. We had somebody bring out a violin, a violinist and who played, I, I don't even know what it was. It was some amazing like violin piece, you know, so stuff like that. So it's fun because it's both the reading and also uh, more of like, you know, like a, like a, what I think of as like a real salon sort of experience where you're getting some other aspects of, you know, some other pieces of art as well. That's so fun. Are you meeting in person again soon? Our next one is in July. And this one is, it's, I think hopefully the last one on zoom and then, Mm -hmm. and then it'll be, then we don't meet till October. And I feel like by then maybe we can go in person. I hope so. (laughs) How how have people been doing the sensory aspect with zoom? Well, you know, I mean, a lot of people have done slideshows of, of images and stuff and that, that works really well. And actually the, um, the violinist was, that was over Zoom and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, so that, that works. The, the one that didn't work quite as well was we had somebody who's a really good chef and, and she was like, I made these cookies. <laughs> and sort of showed them and they looked really good. And then did she just sit there and eat them like the whole time? I didn't think that, but. Oh, torture. We'll have to invite her back to come in person. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. That's a lovely idea, though. I've always been kind of um, enamored of the idea of a salon. I know. I know, right? It's, it's really such cool. a, like, it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. was why it was fun to write about Paris in the, you know, the late 20s, early 30s. I just, I mean, everybody loves that period of time. And it was fun to imagine being there, you know. Did you ever get to go to Paris? I did. Yeah. I went there for research while I was writing the book. Um, and it was fantastic. You know, I, I like went all through Montparnasse and, uh, the building where Man Ray studio was, is still there. It looks exactly the same Mm. as this beautiful, like art deco tile work on the outside. And then the Lee Miller's building has been totally renovated. So it doesn't look the same, but so much of Paris looks exactly the same today as it does in the thirties. So I did that and I did some research at um, a couple different libraries there and, and stuff. It was really, it was great. Great. I mean, you know, what's not to love. <laughs> I suppose it's like, like, Oh, it was a really great experience. Like shocker. <laughs> That's awesome. So you also teach writing. And we do have yeah. a lot of writers who listen to the podcast. Do you have like your favorite bit of advice uh, that you could share with the listeners about writing? Oh gosh! Um, oh, wow, I should have something at the tip of my <laughs> tip of my fingers. You would think, but um, let me think. Well, you know, actually, I think uh, something that I think is really useful to think about when you're writing, especially if you're writing historical fiction, um, although it really works for, for everything is every story is told through the point of view of, of the narrator, whether it's first person or third person. And I think if you think about the 
similes and metaphors and the descriptions that you're using as coming through this very, very um, specific consciousness. So that if you're writing a story, like if you're writing about Lee Miller, who was a model and um, a photographer, she's going to look at the world. She's going to notice the fabrics that people are wearing. She's going to think about their hairstyle. But if you're writing about, you know, a, whatever, like a factory worker, they're probably, that person is probably not necessarily going to notice the fabrics. And I feel like when I read stories where the type of images or the, or the bulk of the description focuses on things that the narrator isn't going to necessarily notice, I feel, Mm -hmm. I feel like that pulls me out of the dream of fiction. So if it's something that I think is really easy to do as, as you're revising, you can go back through and you can just think about is this the sort of noticing that my specific character would do? And if not, perhaps consider cutting that. Wow. You've just helped me understand why some novels didn't work for me. Oh, you know, that there are people just putting in all these historical details that don't really make sense. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, then there's that too, like beyond just the, descriptions, like, you know, even just some of the information of the historical period, like your narrator is not necessarily going to know all of that stuff. And so it is, it feels very jarring um, sometimes to get that information. And you're like, it just, it's like coming out, coming into a different novel all of a sudden, you know? Yeah. 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 I've had the same reaction, Chris. Like I was thinking of it more as a reader, as you were talking about that, but I can also see from the writer's perspective, like you go out and you do all this research and you just want to cram it all in, you know, or you have all these ideas in your head. And so it's, you know, I could see where the revising is where you would have to just like, don't fall in love with your sentences and, you know, do some, some slicing and dicing. Or don't fall in love with, yeah. With like, all with all of those hours that you spent researching, you know, lampshades or whatever it is, because it's more interesting to you than to the reader. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. And it really weighs the book down. I think, I think if there's Mm -hmm. too much research or if you can feel the research that, Mm -hmm. that I, that I don't love, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to find the right balance. Right. Yeah. So speaking of research, I know we could talk to you all day, but are we allowed to ask you if you're working on anything now? You, you're allowed to ask me, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, so I am trying to write a second book, which is hard. It's hard to do. Um, and so I have, so far, I have started and then abandoned two two different projects have about a hundred pages of each of those. And, you know, maybe someday I'll go back. I don't, I still love them, <laughs> but I just, I don't know. They weren't grabbing me. And then um, I started working on this book and all I'll say is that it's, it's historical fiction as well. Um, it's set in 1940s Hollywood and Hitchcock is a character in the book. So, um, and I'm really, I'm really excited about it actually. So I'm, I'm working on that, making progress and um you know, it all takes as long as it takes, but I'm feeling really good about it right now. Yeah. 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 Well, good. Another fun time period and another like, oh, bummer. Like I have to, I might have to like go to Palm Springs. <laughs> there and, you know. I might have to hole up in a hotel room and write a bunch of sex scenes. That's uh, yeah, so hard right? Work. yeah, right. In LA and then go to the beach. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Oh, Whitney, it's been so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for writing this lovely book, The Age of Light. Go out and get yourself a copy, folks, and read it. Oh, thank you guys for having me on. It's such fun to talk about it and to talk to you. You're so much fun. (laughs) Thanks, Whitney. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. 
We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.